it's episode 111 of the Geek Rex podcast, and I guess that makes it like 111. Uh, uh, that's some kind of omen number, maybe, if you divide six by something. <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. But, I, dude, all I know is Lemmy from Motorhead is dead. So I guess uh, I did, I, a moment of silence for one of metal's greatest icons, Harper. Agreed. Anyway, it's me and Harper. It's a two-man show, and we're talking about Quentin Tarantino's latest, The Hateful Eight, which we both saw in 70mm in the big 70mm road show that you probably heard about, maybe, uh, given how shittily it was promoted by the Weinstein Company. But we saw it in glorious Ultra Panavision right before it was released wide this week. Yeah, wow. Uh, It's in theaters. You should go see it. And we're going to talk about it now, Harper. So just to start, uh, let me ask you this. Where do you sort of stand on Tarantino's filmography in general? I mean, is he a filmmaker you dig? I can't remember. Yeah, I was kind of in a weird place with Tarantino, actually, because I am a a huge fan. His early movies played a really big role in me getting into movies as as an art form and not just something to go do when you're bored. Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and Kill Bill, those were all movies that were like top of my list for a long, long time, and I still love those movies. Uh, and Glorious Bastards is maybe one of my favorite movies. I think it's probably his best. I was really disappointed with Django. It was a movie I thought was okay, but didn't really live up to his filmography. Um, and I, I chalked a lot of that up potentially to the loss of his longtime editor. But uh, so seeing the trailer for this and hearing about this and seeing that it was another kind of Western movie, I was not super thrilled and I was not all that excited. But, you know, as it got closer and closer, started hearing some good things about it. So eventually did get very excited to go see it and really enjoyed it for the most part. Yeah, um, I, I'm kind of... Uh... You know, Tarantino was not a thing that I like grew up with, you know, uh, at least alongside because I I remember when Pulp Fiction came out, I wasn't actually allowed to watch it uh, (laughs) as a kid. It was like the movie my dad wouldn't let me see. And I don't think I actually saw Pulp Fiction until I was like a senior in high school. So that was like full five years after it came out, six years after it came out, something like that, maybe more. So that was that was quite dated. And I didn't see Jackie Brown. I saw it when it first came out. Actually, I take that back. I saw it when it was first released on video. And I think I saw it then and it made no impression on me. You know, really, I didn't click with Tarantino the way I wanted to until probably the Kill Bill movies. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, they're, they're not like my favorite movies or anything, but I do like them a good deal. Uh, I would probably like them better when seen in their like proper context rather than two films that, yeah. you know, yeah, that are kind of, uh, I mean, they're, they're, I would like to see them edited down to one basically. And then I saw Grindhouse in the theater and that was like my favorite thing ever. Uh, not fun. the yeah, not like the movie itself or the two individual parts. Like Planet Terror is fine by itself and Death Proof is pretty good by itself. But altogether, it was like one of the most fun movie-going experiences I ever had. Yeah. And now, you know, then I saw Inglorious Bastards and I thought that was a masterpiece. So it was just sort of like Tarantino was just getting better and better for me as sort of like a, a purveyor of cinematic adventurism or, or uh, cinematic uh, – 
pioneerism, we'll say. And that made me pretty, pretty excited to see movies like Django, which I liked pretty good. I mean, it was, I liked it a lot. I think my initial review was a lot more glowing than I sort of landed on it. It felt a little safe in light of Inglorious Bastards, sort of a similar sort of a similar take on very controversial subject matter, I guess. It's still fun, and I saw it again on Netflix maybe about a year and a half ago, and I liked it be- a little a little better than my second viewing, which came when it, first, it was first released on video. Yeah, then I Hateful Eight, you know, another cowboy movie, at, at, at least at first. And uh, at least that was my first initial thought, and then uh, I went to the theater and saw it. And I saw it like three, four weeks ago during the press screening for it, and I was instantly in love. It is a mean, dirty gross film that uh, really it seems to hold the uh, hold its audience at a distance while also sort of th- you know Quentin Tarantino's kind of throwing his dick on the table I kind of feel like <laughs> yeah quite quite literally in in, in the case of uh, the end of the first half <laughs> yeah 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 for sure for sure so like so you liked it that's good mm-hmm. um, let me ask you what, what is it about the movie that that uh, it clicked for you so well well, I, I really enjoyed the first half a lot. I was like super, super into it just for the fact that, you know, it kind of really slowly. I, I think Tarantino is one of the few directors that can get away with being like really, really patient in modern cinema. And, uh, you know, the, the opening two chapters are all really just building. They haven't even gotten to the cabin with the Hateful Eight yet. And that just that whole first half where we're kind of learning who everybody is or, you know, we're questioning who everybody is and not knowing the truth behind what's going on exactly. The mystery of it and the just the characters are all I, I found every single one of the characters to be really fascinating and, and fun in their own right. It was, you know, it was not a lot of the same thing repeated. They all had kind of their interesting quirks and they were all kind of had their funny little ways of looking at things and different philosophies. So just kind of the mystery and the interaction between all of those characters was a blast that, that enough, that was enough to sustain a really, really enjoyable movie experience on its own. But I think as we come into the second half and, and get farther along and sort of start to figure out what's happening, I think it's actually, I think, like you said, it is a, it's a really dirty and disgusting and violent movie like in the vein of what people think Tarantino is. The people who don't watch Tarantino usually talk about him as being just overly violent. It's along those lines, but I think there's a lot of really interesting subtext in there that I don't think some of his other movies have. I, th- I think most of Tarantino really revels in the act of storytelling and, and the like the movies that he's trying to kind of emulate and the style he's trying to emulate. All that stuff is there and is gorgeous and wonderful. Um, I felt like this movie had more of kind of had maybe a little bit more to say than most of his other movies as far as making a point and and having a a theme, a very interesting and twisty theme. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was it was different than what I much different than I expected it to be, which was. Yeah, you know, he he's in an interesting vein right now where he's turning on genre, right? Mm -hmm. So like Kill Bill was his samurai film, sort of that tribute to Kurosawa and probably a a million other Japanese filmmakers that I can't, you know, I don't know the names of and I'm not smart enough to be able to identify really. And, you know, Grindhouse, of course, being a tribute to the drive-in experience and slasher films and his particular uh, entry. Then you've got got three movies, though, with Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and now Hate 
Hateful Eight that all sort of turn on Western tropes, I felt like. Mm -hmm. And I guess he's sort of, you know, tackling different areas of them. And uh, again, you know, this shows my sort of neophytism. I don't really know, like, how to identify what what areas of the Western he's really tackling. Yeah. But, you know, certainly with with Hateful Eight, this feels a bit more like a John Ford film than this Sergio Leone type movie that Django Unchained was. So with Django Unchained, you had a film that was wide vistas and the kind of movie that sort of embraced that good, the bad, the ugly man with no name type of approach with the dark stranger who, you know, who's got, who, who, who travels the land to, you know, defeat oppressors, et cetera, et cetera. With this movie, it's far more, uh, Intimate and far, and it's it's shocking that this is even shot in seventy millimeter, really, because he only seems to take advantage of it in certain elements. But most of the film takes place indoors, yeah. And that was a kind of a neat approach because you know, as many critics have already pointed out, not only does this movie feel like a John Ford movie in its content, but it also has sort of the same tonal engagements as like a John Carpenter film. Uh, you yeah. know, most notably your favorite Harper, the thing. And I feel like you probably were th- at least thinking about that at least once while you were watching it. Oh, right. Of, of course. Yeah. It has very deep carpenter undertones. I, I thought the music sound, if you took the music out, out by itself, it sounds like a horror movie score. Totally. And yeah, of course the whole thing is very much like the thing with this whole, you know, we can't trust anybody. You don't know who, who they really are. And if, if what they say they are is true and you know, and that, that's kind of the centerpiece of the whole movie is, is that kind of paranoia. Yeah. 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 Well, I said it in my review. I mean, it's, it, it's that same idea of everyone's a danger, but everyone's in danger. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the movie kind of tick. You said something interesting, though, at the end of uh, your sort of initial thoughts about this movie, where you said you felt like Tarantino may have been aiming for something a little more relevant Mm -hmm. to today's times. And and certainly I think that is the case, too. So, you know, Inglourious Bastards and Django Unchained are revenge dramas and revenge thrillers, right? Where they tackle, you know, this idea of filmmaking in a way with uh, you know your film critic character in Inglorious Bastards, Archie Hickox, and uh, you've got Django who's sort of portraying a role, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of acting and a lot of showmanship and a lot of the same sort of tools that are being utilized, you know, sort of in a meta way to portray, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of revenge narrative that Tarantino is building in both of those movies. But they don't necessarily say anything about today's culture, yeah. right? I mean, it's you know, it's Nazis like, oh, are bad. Slavery, slavery was bad, you know, and that, of course, they were, they were horrible, horrible things. And, you know, everybody, you get the applause moment when the bad guys are getting, you know, whipped and flayed or mowed down with, with uh, Tommy guns, right? But with this film, I think you're right. I think there's quite a bit of discussion that could be had around the actual content of what he's trying to portray, particularly around, I guess, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Mm -hmm. uh, Marquez, (laughs) Marquis. (laughs) He sort of represents the lone, he he does represent the lone African-American character in the, in the story, but that's also a bit telling because right around the time of this film's release, Quentin Tarantino had become very involved with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And, 
and he'd been showing up at police brutality, uh, you know, protests and the like. So there's a bit of an undertone there that's hard to sort of escape that he's maybe trying to tackle that area within the text of this film. Yeah, I think a lot of his movies have racial issues, but I don't think he ever has really dealt with it in any way or made any kind of statement about, you know, race relations or racism at all in any of his movies. I don't feel like, I mean, I could be wrong, but, um, whereas this movie, I think it's, that's, I think that's really what it's about down uh, deep down is it's, it's this, I think there's this weird idea of like, how can you really know what somebody else is thinking and how that, how that plays into the way we kind of stereotype people and how we judge a person based immediately by the way they look instead of, you know, actually getting to know this person and knowing what, what they actually are and what they're about. You know, I, I think that paranoia is built into this kind of idea. And, you know, it's an interesting movie because the straight from the name, we're, we're walking in knowing that these are all horrible people is kind of, I think is kind of the, thing you have to know going into it just based on the name and, and what the movie's about. And that covers everything that covers, you know, a, a sheriff who maybe well, maybe a sheriff who was also a white supremacist. And we have a Confederate general who is, uh, you know, horribly racist. And you have the African-American bounty hunter who, you know, seems like an upstanding person who's really fought for what he cares about until you find out about what he did during the war and, and the kind of horrible things he may have done. Um, you know, like everybody has this kind of like dark background and, and kind of twisted mindset that you don't really see right away necessarily. Or in, in some characters cases, they start out as horrible and then closer to the end, they seem a little bit more tolerable. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's something I feel like I have to see it another time or two to really kind of dig into it. But it, there's definitely a lot more going on there as far as kind of how he treats, you know, a racial issue rather than just having it as as kind of back. You know, I think I think he uses racist slurs and things like that in his movies as kind of colorful background in a lot of cases. But here it was it actually meant something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you ever go back and look at Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown, I mean, he drops the end bomb uh, pretty, pretty often. Right. He does and, himself in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he gets and he's been criticized for that by some and defended by others. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson being his most like ardent defender. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, you know, they are creative partners. So you could understand why he would have a better understanding of why Tarantino utilizes those that 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 sort of dialogue. But it feels like in this movie, like it's being used as a sort of, you know, I think in the Village Voice interview that they did with him, they 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 mention that it's used as a weapon here and it's used to really just like make you feel shitty. Right. Uh, it's used as an insult more than a, a sort of a term of appropriation. Right. And I think that uh, that that sort of centers back down to like what the point of the film is. And it sort of centers on, you know, not only issues with race in America today, but also issues with, uh, you know, between men and women too, sure. a little bit. I mean, like, it, like it, the, the the racial subtext is a little uh, is a little broader because, or a little brighter on the on the surface of the script because there is a flashback specifically that sort of plays to you know white man's fear of the other, right? 
But there's also moments that sit down and look at, you know, how do men treat women? How did men treat women at that time? And how do they treat them today? And what can we learn from the past? So that like the, the, the Daisy character is very important in that regard beyond what her function in the plot is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. But I'm also fascinated by the fact that, you know, even though they're sort of the victims of abuse and insults and slurs, those two characters are also not so damn good either, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they, it's, it, there's no protagonist here. No, and and you know it's funny. It's interesting that you mentioned um, Domergu too. That's, that's that's a part of it I hadn't really thought about much, but it is interesting because they sort of set her up as this horrible person, and she is. Like, there's no question, she's a bad person. But I think it's interesting that he never, you know, up until you find out why exactly the bounty is so high on her head, which is really more by association than anything else. You know, you just kind of have to imagine that she's done some really, truly terrible thing that means she deserves the kind of awful treatment they give her. And then you don't, you know, by the end you realize, uh, well, it's really just because she's in this gang with her brother. Like she, she's bad, no question. But, you know, she, she may not have even done anything that particularly terrible, which is kind of interesting. But that, that character is, is fascinating. Jennifer Jason Lee is fantastic in this, uh, as just totally unlikable and gross. And, but, but, you know, like you say, it does bring up those kind of issues. Well, the drafts of these scripts are really are, are again really uh, worth sort of digging back into a bit too. So uh, again, I, I pull a lot of this stuff from this great Village Voice interview that you got to check out. Harper, uh, oh. Matt, Matt Miller, our friend, pointed it out to me, and I was just blown away by reading it. But before he formulated this story, this was going to be a Django Unchained sequel with, I guess, the role that Samuel L. Jackson played was going to be Django instead. Uh, we, and we'll assume, we'll just assume Jamie Foxx reprised that role or whatever. But he sat down and realized, you know, Django is too good a character. We already have too much attachment to him. And we already know that he is basically, uh, you know, uh, if not chaotic good, uh, at least approaching moderate good character. So we have too much sympathy with him on, on an audience side. Yeah. And that's a popular film. So he decided to scrap that. And so Django and White Hell did not occur, uh, which was the name of the film, <laughs> or at least the, the story that he was pulling together. And instead, you know, he had these different drafts of The Hateful Eight, and that's how he created, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Mar- Mar- Marquez, as Walton Goggins' character refers to him. But in the second draft of the script, apparently he gave more information as to what Daisy's background was and what Daisy had actually been involved in. And he wanted to tell more of Daisy's story, which he kind of felt like he needed to do in order for Daisy to sort of deal with all of the uh, assaults she deals with in, in the story in the third draft. But he eliminated all that stuff in the second draft into the third draft because he wanted to just sort of rationalize it for himself, hmm. which I thought was kind of kind of an, an interesting choice because I, I like the idea that he's gutsy enough to do all of these sort of terrible things to his his well I won't say his lone woman character but his main woman character in the film and do it in a way that you know if you weren't aware of this stuff you might start to wonder god what's going on with this movie what are you going for here so I, it's it was a gutsy choice that I kind of admired I guess yeah that, that's interesting I didn't I hadn't heard about that it's interesting because all the characters have 
you you never really necessarily become sympathetic with any of them, except maybe maybe Kurt Russell's character. There's not anything revealed about him to be particularly awful, besides the fact that he's constantly beating up on uh, on Daisy. But you know, everybody else, there's like this one thing, or or you know, hinting of of something that they've done that makes makes them totally totally unlikable despite you know whether you might like the character up until the point when that's revealed or something you know like like even um major marquess you know you really uh even when you find out what he did at the the prison it's like oh well you know okay that was a pretty horrible thing what he did but you know maybe he, he just had to escape and maybe he didn't know that was going to happen and then you get you know him goading on and that the story that he tells the uh the confederate just before the intermission or just for the halfway point and then it's like, OK, like he's he's pretty awful um, yeah. in his own right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it'd be really interesting to read kind of the or, 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 you know, see the process of putting those characters together, because it is really, really carefully crafted, you know, to the point where it's, you know, it's very careful not to favor one character or the other at any given moment, necessarily. It's very it's very back and forth. Do you think the film earns its running time? I mean, you mentioned we talk about the first act a lot, and, yeah. I, and I'm going to like say don't don't spoil anything yet. I kind of want to like make sure we have a spoiler section sure. <laughs> for this one because the movie's not you know it it just hit wide release now. But how do you think the second act compares to the first? And do you think the film earns that three hour running time? I think the running time is fine. I, I don't have any problem with that, um, and I feel like the the suspense of the whole thing and the kind of slow build up and the way that he builds the characters is absolutely worth the the three hour plus running time. I don't have any problems with that. I do think the second, the, the two halves are a little at odds with each other, which I, I think a, a lot of his movies suffer from this. Uh, sometimes um, death proof in particular is really, really segmented and kind of in a strange way, which I think was intentional, but the first half feels very like carefully plotted and like a mystery, like here's the pieces you need to put things together a little bit. And then the second half just goes totally off the rails and is completely, completely chaotic. And again, again, we won't spoil it, but, um, you know, some, some key characters, some uh, that you would not, not expect to, to happen at, at certain points in the film. Uh, some bad things happen to them very suddenly. It, it's kind of, Tarantino's got this weird thing where it's to me where it's like um, if there's if there's a character or a, or an a aspect of the story you really like, he likes to torture you by getting rid of that at a, at a at, a, at any opportune moment and you know make make things fall apart very quickly. You know, for example, in Inglorious Bastards, you know we're we're introduced to Michael Fassbender's character and he's fascinating and fun and uh, you know that and the whole scene in the bar is is super intense and then you know we lose that character you know he's he's only in the movie for what 25 minutes of the you know two hour and 45 minute runtime or whatever he kind of takes away these things from you and doesn't let you it it gives you the sense of that like you cannot control the story and you really don't know where things are going to go which is something that most most directors aren't bold enough to do i don't think to kind of take take the reins completely like that well, well, the Archie Hickox character, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the no. Archie Hickox character, what's funny about him is that he kind of, 
it's kind of an inherent tragic figure because this is a guy who knows so much about German cinema Mm -hmm. and knows, you know, all this stuff about German arts and culture. And then, you know, he, 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 in the bar, he fucks up, you know, how to Mm -hmm. show the sign for three, (laughs) you know, how Germans show a sign for three versus how, you know, uh, someone from the UK would do it. And, that little detail, him not knowing that, is what gives up the entire game for him and his uh, his his uh, fellow spies in that bar. Um, so it, it, there there there's like these little mini arcs that you can pull from every character in a Tarantino yeah. movie, and that's the case with a number of these of these characters in Hateful Eight. Uh, so uh, yeah, continue. But it, that's just something I wanted to sort of point out. No, no, no. That's a very good point, and and yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the idea here is that you know it's not about necessarily who lives and who dies it's about each character having their own kind of individual ending and individual arc and how that's it's it's just surprising i mean i think he deals with it in a way that no other filmmaker does and yeah that's that's the whole thing is the second half is all about that and like not knowing what's going to happen whereas the first half is very very suspenseful and slow and patient the second half is nuts (laughs) What about the 70 millimeter bits? I mean, do you think it was a film that w- that had to be seen in that format? Like, I mean, what your experience in going to see it in the theater for this whole road show, mm. was that worthwhile? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I think shooting it on the Ultra Panavision is certainly worth it. I mean, the movie is totally gorgeous and it's a and it's a very different look. Showing it on film Eh. I mean, I, I noticed it. I noticed that it was not digital, which made me realize how long it's actually been since I've seen a movie on film. It's so rare now. But I don't think it's necessary. I do think the overture and having an intermission are they added a lot to the experience. And, and the program book, too, is, was a really cool touch to actually have that. It, it felt like a very classic movie going experience the same way that Grindhouse did, which is really cool. Yeah. But I do think, you know, I think the intermission actually added a good bit because we had 10 minutes or whatever in between the two halves to, you know, I saw it with two of my friends talking about it and just, you know, kind of working our way through it and then coming back into it, you know, rather than having to wait until the very end of the movie to, to kind of talk about it so you kind of have a chance to kind of digest it a little bit which is kind of interesting and not something you ever get to do with a movie now so that i thought that added a little bit to it i'd be i'd be really curious to see how the regular version is going to put the two halves together without an intermission because that seemed almost it seemed very integral to the to the way the story was told yeah, apparently they've reshot they reshot some scenes. So a lot of the seventy stuff that was shot for seventy millimeter, I'm assuming they have some alternate takes of a few things. Mm-hmm. I don't know what those are or, you know, how they approached it, but they shaved I don't know, six minutes off the running time yeah, and I think so. total. It gets right underneath the three hour mark. It's like two it's like two hours and fifty four minutes or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if I really got much out of the 70 millimeter experience uh, other than the overture and the intermission and the booklet, the actual like decorative stuff added more for me than the actual like visuals. And it's mainly because I don't have an eye for this kind of thing. Well, and you know, like, like I said, I noticed the difference, but you know, and, and, I'm a big proponent of using film and not killing it off and and shooting on film, I think is fantastic. And I think that definitely does add a lot to a movie. It looks different and works in a different way than digital does. But the presentation of actually seeing it on film or on digital, I really, you know, I thought maybe this would 
convert me and make me feel differently, but I really don't think it makes almost any difference at all. I mean, you get a, you know, there's a little bit more of like that kind of flicker and, and where things move around a little bit when, when they shouldn't, like the kind of imperfections, I guess. Right. But, you know, that added so little to the experience. Like you said, the, the decorative outside stuff, the intermission, the overture and that, and the program had way more to do with making it an interesting experience than actually you know, having the presentation on film. And I think that makes it worthwhile to go see in, in that, in that arena. Yeah, uh, I agree. Like I would prefer, I mean, believe me, I prefer to have an intermission so I can go take a piss <laughs> um, or go get a soda or popcorn or whatever, you know, because it's three hours of a movie. Right. I think if you have the opportunity to see it in that format, you should probably still do it just because, uh, you're not going to be able to experience that again necessarily yeah. unless they release a cut like this, right? Which they might. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'm not privy to how they do it. But, you know, it took them forever to release the complete Grindhouse on, on Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that didn't come out till 2011, I think. And I, it, it took forever, but I was, it was, I, I bought it instantly when it happened. So for that alone, yeah, I would say do that. But you know, there's some points uh, to get back to the running time really quickly. Mm-hmm. There are some points where I do feel its length in the second time I saw it. So I've seen the movie twice now, and there are some still shots where I kind of felt like, okay, let's get on with it. Yeah, right? there's a few odd ones that I'm, I'm really curious as to why they're in there like that. Like uh, the one I, I, I'm guessing one you might be talking about is of Daisy when they play that Apple Blossom song in the carriage. No, no, no. I love that, actually. Oh, okay, okay. I, I was thinking more of the environmental shots. Okay, uh, okay. Probably, my guess is to, is to take advantage of the format. Sure. Um, it was probably like, oh, we, we have the opportunity to do this. Let's, you know, shoot this in 70 millimeter. These horses approaching Minnie's haberdashery or whatever. So, yeah, that would be one of the scenes that I thought, okay, I've, I've, I've seen these horses approach. <laughs> um, but, no, the movie has a lot of, like, still shots, like you just mentioned, like the, the shot of Daisy's face mm-hmm. or the shot of um, Marcus's face when, uh, you know, they're hammering in the uh, – hammering the wood onto the door for like the eight millionth time, which which was something I was getting a little uh, tired of the second time. It was like, you gotta, you gotta kick it open. You gotta kick the door open. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta put two, you gotta put two nails in it. God damn it. You know, that was a, that was definitely like the moment where I felt like this was the most stage bound moment in the show. Right. Yeah. But I started to notice how he started to use that time as well. And it was building the story around the characters. Like you could see Marcus notice the general mm-hmm. and sort of rec- you know, recollect him from his past, right? And that was used to just sort of build time so no other plot was occurring around them other than what was happening right there. And I began to sort of appreciate that a little bit more, uh, especially when my second viewing of it. And I think it's a film that does reward multiple viewings. Yeah, I was going to ask because, you know, it's it's interesting because the – the movie, I feel like a big part of what I really enjoyed about it was the mystery and the suspense of it and not knowing what was what was coming. So uh, know, knowing that, going in and knowing what was going to happen, is, is the second viewing very different? I mean, did you feel like you noticed a lot of stuff that, you know, pre, you know, foreshadowing that, that you didn't notice the first time around? Uh, not as much. Like I should have I should have paid more attention to character faces, I guess. But 
I did sort of appreciate a little bit more of the mystery elements, maybe like the sort of Agatha Christie moments that are peppered throughout in the beginning of the film, especially. And I still feel like the second half of the film moves faster than the first half. Yeah. Like, I think that's when, like, as you say, they stand very, very much apart. And it's worth noting uh, Hannah's reaction when she saw it with me and uh, as well as uh, her brother Daniel, who we all saw at the 70 millimeter road show, uh, she much preferred the second half to the first half. Interesting. But, you know, it's got a lot of that sort of gruesome horror elements too, you know, and that's, it, it, it is, it, 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 there are some gross out moments, folks. So that would be something to prepare yourself for if you're squeamish about that. But, I don't know if I noticed real serious clues since I already kind of knew what the resolution was, but I did appreciate the sort of meta-like approaches that were taken, uh, particularly in the second half. And to say more, we'll have to go into the spoiler section, which... Harper, if you're ready to do, we can do in just a minute. But I want to just sort of put a bow on the non-spoiler section by asking you this. Mm-hmm. Where does this rank in the Tarantino pantheon for you? And you don't have to rank them all out or anything. No, but. no. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that last night, and I, I'm, uh, it's it's really tough because I, I love a lot of his stuff. For me, Inglorious Bastards is still still probably at the top. This is probably somewhere in the third or fourth for me, um, behind Inglorious and maybe Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Part One, something like that. Um, it's it's definitely in my top top four, I would say, somewhere in there. You prefer Part One to Part Two? Oh, of Kill Bill, absolutely. Oh man, why do people do that? I, oh, I, dude, the Kung Fu. I think Part Two is far superior. Oh, I, I like them both a lot, but <laughs> I, the 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 sword fighting in in Part One is is way over the top awesome for me <laughs> uh, I, know, I know but you know bud rules all as far as i'm concerned and he's Kill pretty awesome uh, yeah, i mean i think that i think his whole story arc is the best of all those assassins and i uh you know it also gives me a lot of great material to master my michael madsen impression so, <laughs> uh, anyway let's move on to the spoiler section and we will uh we will hop in right now Spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. So, okay, full spoilers. Sorry, if you've seen the movie, get the hell out. Close it off. We like the movie. It's good. I ranked it. You know, Harper ranks it third. I probably rank it about fourth behind Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and uh, Inglorious Bastards, which I think is his masterpiece. But anyway, spoilers. Let me ask you this, Harper. Did you guess the mystery at all? I, I had a feeling that it was that it was at least more than one of them. I didn't necessarily know it was going to be everybody else <laughs> that was left basically i kind of felt like it was it was it was telegraphed the second time though like i, I didn't want to dig into this prior to but I, I kind of felt like those guys didn't quite have any flaws like 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 bob had no flaws oswaldo had no flaws joe gage had no real flaws but we knew everything that was wrong with everybody else right yeah that's a good point i mean i, I think that's definitely true um for Joe Gage, I think is probably the least interesting character in the movie. There's not, not a lot going on there, and Oswaldo is a great character and has a lot of super fun kind of personality quirks and, and just you know yes yes that's me you know like I loved his character, but you're right there's not like a lot of you know there's not like this deep dark thing in his background that we kind of come to know about like we do with the other major characters. 
I do think Senor Bob was, I, I almost thought he was meant to throw us off because it was so obvious that he was bad and that something that he was, something was wrong there. Not necessarily that he was the one going to be saving Daisy, but that obviously, you know, it was pretty obvious from the get go that he didn't belong there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it, he was such an exaggerated character too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was definitely. I, I don't know. I, I, it was no surprise when it turned out. Oh yeah, he was behind it all, and so was everyone else that was there when they showed up, except <laughs> for that general, right? Yeah. I mean, and I love that scene that with the with the uh, Channing Tatum cameo, mm-hmm. right? Like when uh, Jody first shows up uh, with those other uh, those other three guys. And they sort of they sort of set up and they eliminate Minnie and uh, Sweet Dave or, you know, anybody else that was there. They set up their their whole their 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 presentation like a play. Mm-hmm. Like it, like literally they come in and they prepare themselves like actors. And I thought that was really that was the, the cool like meta moment I mentioned, I, especially like right before. When John Ruth shows up with his whole cadre, they're 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 like taking breaths, giving each other hugs, good luck, man, you know, like like before a show a play is about to open. Yeah, and that's interesting. I loved that moment. It was probably my favorite moment in the entire movie because it felt like this big wink and nudge towards um, you know, toward towards the, the craft, right? In a way that I haven't seen Tarantino do before. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it in terms of, of, you know, that meta kind of quality. I was just thinking it felt very classic Tarantino to have this like big shock moment come when he, you know, when you realize there's somebody else there under the floorboards and he shoots up at the major. Um, and then we go and then we leave that. And that's like classic Tarantino to, again, kind of tor- torture the viewer a little bit and that we're dying to know what's happened. And although, you know, it's important to know how this all got set up and that, that I agree. I think that chapter is really fantastic and fun, but the whole time you're like, okay, I, I we got to get back to this so I can find out what I, what's happening in the present now. Like it's a flashback. That's also like kind of a tease and that you're waiting to get back. So to have it also be like the beginning of the story and the, the setup for the play is really interesting too. I hadn't thought about that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I also, he kind of uses the running time against you. So mm-hmm. I, I forgot Channing Tatum was even in the movie yeah. um, after a while because you went you basically went an entire movie's length without seeing him and the intermission hits and you still hadn't seen him. <laughs> so I, I I was I was kind of kind of shocked when he popped up. I was like, all right, he's supposed to be in this movie. <laughs> uh, and I didn't even recognize him at first when he first blows Marcus's yeah nuts off so and then he shows up. i'm like all right there's channing tatum okay here we go and that was i thought that was a very satisfying reveal even if the mystery on its face should have been pretty obvious yeah yeah i I totally agree i had the exact same experience where i saw his name in in the opening credits and was like oh i forgot about that and then uh, forget again until he shows up and yeah and and, you know he gets that kind of whole chapter to himself but yeah even when they show him when he he's first revealed as to where he is, you know, I didn't even, it was, it was such a shock that I didn't even register who it was. <laughs> I think there's the marketing is underplayed his involvement and smartly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I mean, cause if that's, that's, 
you know, that that's not a, a – I mean, the guy's playing Gambit, you know. He's going to front his own superhero franchise soon, so mm-hmm. – presumably. Uh, so that's like a big name to just like hide, right? And that's a very ballsy move, and I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Tarantino's films are nothing if not ballsy, even when balls are getting blown off. So that that is definitely something that's in the plus column for this film. Let me ask you about the end, mm-hmm. uh, which I feel like that's – I'm certain there are a few moments when people are going to are probably going to walk out of this movie. And I think, uh, you know, even the 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 scene right at the intermission when uh, the forced fellatio may may or may not have happened. But we we see we see visual pictures of it anyway. We're seeing Uh, pictures. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, You're seeing you're seeing oral, you know, you're seeing you're basically seeing rape right on screen. So you're seeing that. So that is something that would turn somebody off potentially if you have sensitive sensibilities to that sort of thing. And then at the end, you see two men laughing over the dead body of a woman uh, as they hang her. Uh, let me ask you, does that moment strike an odd chord with you, or do you think that that was earned by the script? I feel like it's pretty earned, honestly. Um, I I didn't feel all that much sympathy for for Daisy, except for in a, in a few key moments, and then she usually she tends to kind of ruin those moments and, and kind of you know, turn it back on the other side. I think, you know, it's, it's that, that last kind of 15, 20 minutes is really, really interesting because it is, it's the racist white guy who has come to, has found himself on the side with the, the black bounty hunter who initially they hate each other. And then, you know, they're kind of are forced onto the same side. It's them against the woman too. So it's kind of all the, the three, you know, character types that we talked about in the beginning. And when we're talking about kind of the meaning of the movie and you know she's offering him a deal and it's like no matter what happened in that scene was was gonna feel like a betrayal and like something bad was happening that should maybe necessarily shouldn't i mean he could have taken the deal and turned against uh the major and that would have also been pretty horrible and, and uncomfortable but you know the way it turned out felt it's weird because the movie makes you feel like that's a win in a lot of ways but then again, I mean, like you say, it is, it's uncomfortable and it's very weird and, and kind of, you know, awful. And then, and then the way the movie ends after that with just the, you know, them kind of laying there waiting to die and, uh, which again, feels very like the thing and, and talking about the Lincoln letter is, is just a fascinating bow to put on the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It subverts all of the fist pumping endings of the other two films. Right. I mean, this isn't Hitler getting his face blown off and this isn't Broomhilda and Django being reunited. This is like two guys who aren't that great, uh, you know, murdering a woman who is kind of insane. uh, But it's still oddly uncomfortable. And there's like this, I mean, as as we've said already, there's this thread throughout that basically you sort of feel like Tarantino is saying, all right, who do you want to root for, huh? Yeah. Uh, you want to root for that guy? You sure? Okay, you want to root for that person? Is that you sure about that? I don't yeah, know. I think that's a, that's a perfect way to describe it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, it's just a movie of like split loyalties and unsure – you know, unsure partnerships and, you know, it, it is a, it is a mystery in its purest form, but he's also, you know, t- talking to sort of your own prejudices about things. I mean, there are probably plenty of people who would find her murder to be as triumph triumphant 
as Hitler's murder. I mean, probably not, but there are some people that would probably get that same release, oh, right? Sure. And who have no issue with that. Uh, you know, for my part, I felt a little queasy about it. But and I think that's uh, you know I think that's well intentioned, right? So or, or certainly earned by the script that I should feel that way. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a invalid choice for him as a filmmaker, right? I mean, it's it's a movie that plays with your own expectations, and I, it's kind of you know kind of fucking amazing in that way. <laughs> well, and, and you know, too, trying to kind of I can imagine a, a scenario in which he didn't know which. Even Tarantino might not have known which way he wanted it to go as far as who was, you know, which way the sheriff was going to go with it, either take the deal or not, except that it does, you know, having having Daisy hung is does like kind of come full circle into this is the that's the thing that triggers the entire story is her taking her to hang. And so it does kind of put this kind of, you know, conclusion on the whole thing, too, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it is probably going to be. I think the most controversial film he's made in a while. And I think there's going to be a number of folks that are going to have a lot of issues with it. And I will understand why they will. I just don't agree with them. No, And I think that's the point is that you you should have issues with this movie and and with, with some of the characters choices for sure. And that's, I think that's the idea is, you know, spark a discussion about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I honestly, if, if you think that Walton Goggins is Chris Mannix's character is like, is redeemed by the end of this movie. Mm -hmm. I fucking think you have problems, you know, (laughs) he's still a shitty, horrible guy. And I don't think Marcus is any better. You know, it's, it's, you you can't root for anybody in this movie, and I don't think that's the point. I think I don't think you're supposed to, but I think a lot of people are going to have issues with that. There's no one to root for. I guess I many I guess many people will sort of attract themselves to Marcus, but I I have a hard time even doing that. Oh yeah, I mean by, by the by the like you already have kind of mixed feelings about him. He's a great character. I like him a lot as a character, but as you know a person, you have mixed feelings about him. And then of course going into the intermission, it's like okay, like. He's awful. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if that happened, by the way. Right, right. Well, but, you know, even if it didn't, the fact that he's, you know, just making the whole thing up simply so he can get away with killing the Confederate is just as, maybe not just as bad, but it's pretty awful, too. Right. Yeah. To be able to sort of legally get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that you're absolutely right. I, I think, you know, we're meant to kind of feel like uh, John Ruth is the main character and the one we should root for. And again, that's very Tarantino-esque for him to just have him have him killed off in a totally, you know, it's violent and it's bloody, it's gross, but it's not like, you know, the, the hero's death at all. Like, and, and it's not that late in the movie. Like, it's in the second half, but, you know, the character that you maybe feel like you're following as the protagonist is gone for the last hour of the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is it's the protagonist that beats women. Right. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) pick your poison. Right. Exactly. I mean, I guess he's the least bad, but he still beats women, you know, I mean, for all the things he does in his moral code, he has no problem slapping Daisy around. Right. Right. I, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it is a morally ambivalent film, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I loved it for as daring as it was, really. Um, let me ask you this, Harper. Who do you think's best in show in terms of performances? Uh, that's a tough one because there's some really good performances here. I mean, I think Samuel Jackson is fantastic. I think it's the best thing he's done in a really, 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 really long time. But I honestly, I, I think I got to hand it to Walton Goggins. I, I thought he was phenomenal in being a character that was 
you know, you go, you totally go back, like most of the characters, but especially with him, you really go back and forth between hating him and finding him, you know, maybe not not redeemed, but maybe more on the positive side of the film. And then, and and he's also a lot of the comedic relief too. I think he was hilarious. Just the way he kind of plays the audience in a lot of parts where every time uh, the major, you know, makes a point and, and proves his theory. He's all, you know, like, Ooh, you figured it out. <laughs> Which, well, we uh, go with my theory. Yeah. The ugliest guy did it. <laughs> yeah. I, I th- he, he was really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, he was, he, uh, Samuel L. Jackson and, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee are my Great. three favorites. Of course. I mean, they're the obvious ones to pick. I mean, everyone else is giving solid to good performances. Tim Roth certainly has a lot of showy fun stuff that he gets to do. Uh, But I think Tarantino knows where the centerpiece of his film is. And it's, it's on those three characters and sort of what they represent. I I especially found Chris Mannix interesting in that he sort of felt like uh, one of these guys that was really suspicious of the government. Mm-hmm. And there, there's that line where he's talking about, well, you must be reading newspapers and from Washington, DC, <laughs> yeah. you know, it sounds like, I, you know, it sounds like something I would hear at a bar, you know, of the, you know, a bunch of rednecks who uh, don't believe in what CNN reports. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that just, it, there's a lot of relevance there. Yeah. And of course, we talk about Samuel Jackson, who is always wonderful in Tarantino movies. He kind of gets like the best performances out of him that, yeah. uh, uh, I, you know, imaginable. He doesn't phone it in with him at all, which is really impressive. And of course, Jennifer Jason Leigh. I mean, just a wild woman throughout. I mean, and it's great to see her sort of get an opportunity this year to really stretch her legs in a couple different ways, especially for, you know, given how we always talk about how women who once they reach a certain age never get great roles in Hollywood. Uh, it's very exciting to see her get a role that's this delicious, you know, uh, that she can really just sort of sink her teeth into and, and you know ride it to potential awards right and uh that's that's just so exciting and that's so to her and tarantino's credit for making that happen especially by, by the end that's when I, she's really nailing it down man yeah. uh, when she's like got her teeth missing and she's like you know uh, <laughs> trying to explain to chris why he you know needs to fall on her side and take a deal with her and the gang it's it's it's, it's a good scene it's a really good scene yeah uh, so what's your favorite moment in the movie Ooh, that's tough. I, I think probably, I mean, I, I don't know because it's not like a super cinematic moment. But I, I remember the moment that I was like, okay, I like, I love this movie is when the major and John Ruth and Daisy are all kind of tucked away to the side, and and that's when John Ruth is like, okay, at least one of these people is definitely lying, and we we you know they're they're with her, and she's like, yeah, you're absolutely right, they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that that's the moment when I was like, okay, this is like this is super exciting and and fun to watch, you know. And there's there's plenty more kind of cinematic and thematic moments that are brilliant, but that was the moment that like the movie really really clicked for me. I think my favorite bit is Kurt Russell doing his best John Wayne impression throughout the entire movie, mm-hmm. and. He's been mispronouncing Daisy's last name the whole fucking <laughs> movie. Uh, and you don't realize that until you you understand her name is actually pronounced Domingue. Yeah. And that, that's something I didn't catch the first time. I didn't even think about it. And then the second time I was like, oh, wait a second. 
Her name's not Dahmer Goo. <laughs> he's John Root's just a moron. Oh, and he's such a he's such a softy. Like he's an awful, you know, he's this horrible misogynist, but he's also this kind of goofy softy that yeah, like mispronounces her name and uh and is like has his feelings so hurt when he finds out the truth about the Lincoln letter. Like it's uh, there's something really funny about that about that kind of weird dichotomy with that character too. Well, and it's also just kind of fun throughout to sort of point out like the the returning Tarantino players in this mm-hmm. film. I mean, you've got Tim Roth from Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. You've got Michael Madsen from Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill. You've got uh, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, for the, you know all the, all the films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, with Tarantino, you've got. Kurt Russell from Death Kurt Proof. Kurt Russell from Death Proof. Um, am I missing anybody? Who else am I forgetting? Uh, I don't think Bruce Stern's been in anything of his. Zoe uh, Zoe Bell. Zoe Bell from Kit from Death Proof, and I, I thought Bruce Stern had done a Tarantino movie before. I don't know. I can't think of anything. He was uh, great was, too, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he he's Bruce Dern. Bruce yeah. Dern is always is always great. You know. And Damian Bashir, of course, is sort of involved on the side with like Tarantino type stuff because he does at least show up in Machete 2, uh, which is not a Tarantino film, but it is Grindhouse related (laughs) in a way. He's sort of on the outskirts of the Tarantino verse, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, it's just exciting to sort of see all see all these players sort of get reunited. And that was like one of these fun thrills for me. So I guess my last question here, Harper. Uh, awards bait wise is there anything you see you know maybe either getting nominated or catching some gold here uh i mean i think there's definitely some acting uh awards coming this way um i'd I'd be shocked if jennifer jason lee doesn't get nominated and um i mean really those 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 three that we mentioned i'd say all stand pretty good chances of getting nominated um i mean outside of performances i i feel like certainly the script is going to get nominated and I would like to see the score get nominated. I thought the music was really, really interesting. And yeah. I could be I could be wrong about this, but I think this might actually be the first Tarantino movie to have an original score. I think he always uses repurposed popular music and music from other a lot of Marconi music from other movies. Yeah, but this might be the first time he's actually had a score, you know, commissioned for the movie. And it was great. Yeah, yeah, you, you you may actually be right. I uh, I'd have to go back and look, but it it is it is uh, it, it is definitely uh, <laughs> it, it, it it's definitely a very good score. It was in my head. I'll say that yeah. when I, as I was sitting there and uh, just when I was driving back, I was like, "Wow, I have this stuck in my head now." So <laughs> it was a bit of an earworm. So that was exciting. Well, anyway. Any last thoughts on Hateful Eight before we close off, Harper? No, go see it. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely planning on seeing it at least one more time. Uh, very good. I, uh, I I think twice is enough for me, but I will own it and add it to my Tarantino library. I think you should do the same and, uh, you know, love it or hate it. It is a gutsy film, and this year, oof, we've needed some gutsy films, that's for sure. So it's a great way to cap off things, and we will uh, see you guys in the new year. Happy 2016.